A very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to this, the next in our online conversation series. My name is Paula Gooder, and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place within the cathedral. Today's conversation is with the Archbishop of York, the Most Reverend and Right Honourable Stephen Cottrell. And our conversation looks at the theme of Advent and Christmas. We begin with Advent, exploring the traditional themes of heaven and hell, judgment and death, and reflecting on the theme of judgment and how God's judgment of us is often different from our understanding of judgment. We then move on to Christmas and reflect on the birth narratives and their importance for us in our Christian faith as well as thinking about what difference it makes to the world for Jesus to have been born. It is a rich and varied conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. It's really nice to have you with us. And um, what, we're going to start talking about Advent. Um, and I want to, we'll start with Advent and then we'll move onwards into Christmas. Um, and I just wanted to start with Advent because um, Advent's a real churchy thing, isn't it? Because out there, um, apart from your Advent calendar, you don't get to do much Adventy stuff at all. Um, what does Advent mean to you and why, for you, is Advent an important season to observe? So, first of all, really nice to see you and nice to be with you. Um, and I really enjoy these things with St Paul's, which I've done in person and online a bit over the years. So, um, for me, Advent is about not just getting ready to celebrate again the birth of Christ, but getting ready for that day when we will see Christ face to face. And the traditional teaching of Advent has not been about getting ready for Christmas. It's been about, well, getting ready for death. It's about judgment, heaven and hell, eternal life. Um, and I made a promise to myself well, six or seven years ago that in Advent, I will always, always preach and speak, whether it's at the local infant school or St Paul's Cathedral, I will always speak in Advent about death, judgment, heaven and hell and eternal life. And I have to tell you, Paula, it's gone down a storm. Um, even in the places where that was the very last thing they were <laughs> expecting when they invited the bishop to speak in what they think is Christmas. You know, for the world, Christmas starts, um, well, actually, you know, in September or October, certainly in November, and finishes on Christmas Day, whereas for us, uh, that is the season of Advent. So um, I, I found... You know, just to tell you a very quick little story, a true story, overheard on a train, oh, six, seven years ago, maybe what prompted me, um, two women speaking to each other, it was on the tube, two women speaking to each other. One said to the other, how often do you think about dying? And the other person, I mean, I couldn't help but listen, I'm on the tube, just standing next to them. And the other person replied, oh, not very often, just once every two or three hours. And I thought <laughs> it was... I thought it was such an interesting exchange. So I thought, so out there in the world, people are thinking about death. I mean, judgment is our absolute, isn't that our favourite subject? There's nothing human beings like doing better than judging each other. Um, so I thought, yeah, take these things on. Um, and so that's what I do in Advent. I talk about death. I talk about judgment. I talk about heaven. I talk about eternal life. And, and I've found 
both in the church and interestingly outside the church um people seem to like it so are they okay with it i mean i'm interested i can understand about conversations about death and um, heaven and eternal life but doesn't the church have a bit of a reputation for being judgy the whole time? And how do people cope with it when you start talking about judgment? Um, what kind of things do you say and how do they respond? Well, the, the, the way I approach it is to say, um, well, so when, 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 I, when I meet God face to face, I reckon God's going to have some questions he's going to ask me. Um, this, this is sort of, as it were, one of my sermons you're getting very briefly, <laughs> you'll be relieved to hear. You know, God's going to... And so that, so I play around with, I wonder what the questions will be that God will ask me. And, uh, and what I conclude is that God will not ask me the questions that we ask each other. So it's a way of actually saying that we, we might be frightened of the idea of judgment, but actually we love it because there's nothing we love. I mean, take a very ordinary question that we ask each other. Uh, when we meet someone for the first time, what do you do, we say? Um, and, and what lies behind that question is, in, in our heads, most of us have got a league table of occupations, you know, with, you know, so, so you meet someone, they say, what do you do? And they say, brain surgeon. Then we put them up here above us in the league table. Or if somebody says, you know, I'm, I'm unemployed and homeless, or you know, they're below us. So we're constantly constructing these league tables of, of achievement, um, and we're always judging each other. We love TV programs where we can judge each other. You know, X Factor and Strictly, you know, are still very popular and all sorts of other things as well. Um, so um, so thinking about what might God's judgment be um, is a really interesting question. What, what, what's God gained? What's God's? Um, and, and my two conclusions are that God might say, Stephen, what did you do with the gifts I gave you? Um, or he might say, Stephen, how did you serve the least of these, my sisters and brothers? Um, so so that there, which, of course, leads us straight into some of the great biblical narratives around judgment, the parable of the talents, the sheep and the goats. So, so they're the things I think about. And um, well, I'd say my experience is that actually people are quite stimulated by thinking about what what is the real criteria by which we judge a human life and you know the thing i often think about especially reading the biblical narratives is that we always assume that judgment comes up with a negative answer and and there's no doubt that you know come come that moment of judgment there'll be plenty negative to be say, said about me at any rate but i I think we often forget that judgment can also be positive. You know, the bits in the parables where Jesus says, or God says, oh, well done, you good and faithful servant. Um, there's, there's good stuff as well as bad stuff, isn't there? Yeah, let me fly a little theological kite with you, which I hesitate to do, um, uh, and, I'll, and, uh, and I'll give space afterwards for you to correct my theology, because <laughs> I'd love to, I would genuinely love to hear what you think of this. So I have this picture in my mind of... Um, of let's say God is the great artist and God, the great artist steps back from the, the, the thing which God has made, which in this case is, is, is a human life. And the great artist, there is a point, you know, with a painting or a sculpture or a piece of music where the artist judges that it is finished. 
and I use those words, you know, quite, um, you know, quite deliberately, it is finished. It is complete. Um, now, that is a judgment, the, the judgment that it is ready. Um, it is what it was always meant to be. And, and it's that element of judgment, which I think is neglected, um, that, that, that God, the great artist, through the spirit, is constantly working on us and in us so that we can be what we're meant to be. Um, uh, and, and, that, and that, too, is judgment. I absolutely, I'm going to be very boring and not take you on and go, I just entirely agree. <laughs> um, but I, know, and I think what I would kind of probably want to add is to say, and, and in those great pieces of art, there are dark elements and there are light elements. There are really brilliant bits and less good bits. But I really like that idea of God saying, yes, I see you. I see who you are. Um, it, it is finished is, is a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm a bit of a storyteller. So my story for this is, you know, when I meet God face to face on that great and terrible day, when there will be a reckoning, God isn't going to say to me. So why, why weren't you um, Francis of Assisi? And he's not going to say, and why, why weren't you Barack Obama? He's not going to say that. But he is going to say, why weren't you Stephen? You know, I made you. Uh, and I had this beautiful picture in, in my heart of what you were meant to be. And yet you spent your life effectively wishing you were someone else. You know, which again, it's, it's, and I find this really resonates with people outside of the church, particularly, you know, this idea of, you know, self-fulfillment and self-actualization. But a lot of it is, is just an illusion that I wish I was someone else. You know, if only I had, you know you know, a different body, if only I had a different job, if only I'd been born into a different family. Um, uh, and the liberation of the gospel is that God does want to change you, but not into someone else. God wants to change you into that beautiful person he's made you to be. And judgment is that constant refining whereby, you know, the, the, the theological language we'd use is the, the image of Christ is revealed within us and we discover it to be our own truest image. Yeah, I love I absolutely love that as an idea. Really do. Yeah. So um, that's so you're getting all my Advent sermons now. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Lovely. <laughs> Advent like Lent is one of those times where we focus on practices so I'm wondering whether they're given that, and that's your theology of Advent, are there things that you do in Advent that help you to reflect on judgment and death and um, doesn't have very cheery, does it, when you put it like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to be honest with you, sadly. I'd love to give you, I'd love to pretend that there were so many great and spiritual disciplines that I undertook in Advent. I fear there are not, because we, the church, are living our Advent in what is, for most of us, the busiest and one of the most frantic times of the year. Um, so I do find it hard. But since I made this little promise to myself that I would always preach on what the church often refers to as the last things, um, uh, death and judgment and heaven and hell, etc., then I do try to do some reading in Advent each year and in the build-up to Advent, which will, um, you know, renew my preaching and teaching. Um, uh, so so that, it, that is something I do. 
Um, but I, I fear I don't do much else in Advent, you know, beyond that which I normally do, which wouldn't, which, which wouldn't be the same in Lent. In Lent, I would endeavour to, to take on other particular spiritual disciplines. And I like the thought of that in Advent, but I, I can't sit here and pretend that that's what actually happens. But I fear, both for me and therefore for the church, that Advent gets rather lost in what feels like Christmas as soon as you step outside the door of the church. I, I don't know what, I'd love to hear what you do, Paula, or, or what thoughts you have on this. Well, it's, it's, this is going to sound um, so trite, um, but it's um, something that I, I, I find really, really helpful. Um, it's the, ad, the chocolate advent calendar. Mm. Um, and, um, and get a good quality chocolate advent calendar. I'm a big fan of, of the good quality chocolate, but actually tasting your chocolate every morning is I find a really helpful um, Advent discipline. Which is, it sounds like such a terrible thing to say, doesn't it? Taste your chocolate. Um, but there's just something about just taking that moment and knowing that Advent's really busy and um, we're all of us running from carol service to carol service, but taking 30 seconds to let a chocolate melt on your tongue in the morning. And as you do that, to reflect on um, who you are and where you're being, who you're being called into um, is, is something that has weirdly been a really helpful spiritual discipline. I'm slightly yeah. embarrassed to admit it, but... No, Paula, I love it. I'm gonna, you've given me permission to buy an Advent <laughs> calendar with chocolate for myself this year. I never have an Advent calendar. You know, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that. I mean, I, when our boys were younger, of course we had Advent calendars, you know, Star Wars Advent calendars, Thomas the Tank Engine Advent calendars. You know, everyone's in on the act, but 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 I, I don't think I've had one for myself for a very long time. My my, my brother-in-law, who, who's not a, who's not a church person, and for years he perhaps still does it. For years he would make his wife, my sister, he would make her an Advent calendar each year. Um, with a with a just a little something, oh, that's um, lovely. You know, a little a little something. He's a very creative person, um, and and I and I've I can remember often thinking that would be a great thing to do. Mm. Um, I don't mean as something to market, but but just to make something as a gift, you know, for members of the family or even just a gift to yourself of things that would resonate and remind you of the meaning of Advent. Um, and for me again I think also Advent teaches us a, a really interesting discipline because in, as you've said already in Lent you've actually got a chance of, of carving out a bit of time even you know when we're really busy you've mm. got the chance to carve time out whereas Advent they're really for most of us there isn't time to carve anything out of any significance but it is about kind of pulling that idea of waiting into busyness so rather than waiting for that glorious, peaceful moment where nothing's going to happen and nobody's going to ask anything of you, but to recognise that that we are called to pay attention, to wait and to identify what Advent's really about while we're running around doing things, not necessarily just to, to insist on taking space. And mm. that also feels to me quite an important um, discipline to recognise that we don't have to wait for things to be perfect before we mm. can in, engage in the spiritual practice of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, waiting is a key word and theme for Advent. Um, not not the only one, of course, but a, but a key one, um, and certainly some of the traditional Advent liturgies 
I think are very good for that. Um, so I think I probably enjoy the Advent carol service on Advent Sunday more than the sort of nine lessons and carols and Christmas carol service. I don't really know why. Perhaps it's just I prefer the Advent carols, but I don't think it's just that. Um, I think it's something about the the nature of that service which creates the space I crave and don't always have. Yeah. And there's something about the drama of moving from darkness to light, which often they often play mm. with, which I find very powerful mm. this time of year as well. Mm. Yeah. And I do love the Advent hymns, you know, some of the Advent hymns. Uh, you know, I, I hope I might die in Advent so that we can have lots of Advent hymns at my funeral. <laughs> Surely the great advantage of now being the Archbishop, Archbishop of York <laughs> is that you can have whatever hymn you like at whatever time of year. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, probably not, though. <laughs> We've mentioned Christmas, so let's can move on to Christmas. And um, I'm going to ask a really um, obvious question at the start, um, and then we'll kind of explore it a little bit more. Um, what difference does it make to you that Jesus was born? Uh, well, um, I'm glad you asked me that question. I mean, ev every difference, every, every difference, because... Um, you know, one of the things I like, I have some strange ideas. One of the things I like about Christmas, perhaps it's because my name is Stephen, is, is I love the fact that Christmas is followed immediately by St. Stephen's Day. Um, St. Stephen, the very first martyr of the Christian church. It, it straight away means that as we Christians celebrate Christmas, we are reminded that the child in the manger grew up to be the man who died on the cross and that has an impact in the life of the world and indeed in my life that there is a sometimes a terrible cost to christian discipleship um so uh without you know the, the word the church uses to describe this is incarnation uh dear listeners and viewers some of you may be very familiar with that word if you're not don't be frightened of it in the middle of the word incarnation is the is the word carne, which is a, a word you are familiar with if you eat, like I do, chili con carne. Um, chili con carne means literally chilies and flesh. Um, so incarnation is about God taking on human flesh. That That's the great heart of the Christmas message. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, and... And without that, everything else about the Christian story it is not just changed. It, it, it's actually stripped of meaning. It, it's only because um, Jesus is fully God and fully human uh, that everything else has a power and impact in my life. Um, so... Uh, I am a Christian whose whose faith is absolutely forged and formed by the truth of the incarnation. Um, and, and therefore, the, the person of Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, is, is very important to my own spirituality because um, she is the one um, uh, who, who bears the Christ. Um, and whose obedience is, is itself a model of Christian discipleship. 
So sorry, I'm starting to waffle on now. Paula, shut no, me no. up. <laughs> so, so yes. So, um, uh, you know, we, we say, oh, it's Jesus's birthday. Well, yes, it is, and and it's worth celebrating. But it is the it is the the powerful truth of the incarnation, um, which is right at the centre of the Christian faith, and certainly my own spirituality. And there's two things you've said that I just want to um, pull out a little bit more. I want to talk about Mary in a moment, but talk a little bit more about um, the importance of Jesus being human, because that really is kind of that's the heart of Christmas, isn't it? That recognition that Jesus yeah. has become flesh. Um, what difference would it have make if it made if he, you know, a great, great, not so great Christian heresies that he wasn't really human? Um, why is it so important that he was human? Well, if Jesus isn't a human being as, as I am a human being, um, if Jesus is God in disguise as a human being, then what he has done, well, it can't even be a good example because um, uh, it, 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 it can be an example that, that, that is beyond me and separate from me. It is only because God has, to, to paraphrase the language of St. Paul, completely emptied himself of what it is to be God in order to know firsthand from the inside what it is to be human, that there can be any hope in the Christian faith. The hope is that that in Christ, my life and, and all humanity um, finds communion with God. So, so I, I think of Jesus as a, and this is where all human language falls short, but I think of Jesus as a meeting place. Uh, first of all, and first of all, a meeting place between the life of God and human life, but therefore also a meeting place between what we call heaven and what we experience as earth, a meeting place between death and life. Um, so without Jesus's humanity, that meeting has not taken place. You know, you're just saying that is making me think of one of my favourite verses from John, you know, John 1, 52, where you've got the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And it is a, a few years ago, I suddenly realised why that was so important, because, of course, it's riffing off the Jacob vision, mm. where Jacob um, he sees the angels coming, um, ascending mm. and descending. And it's a place which is the gate to heaven. And yeah. in John's gospel, it is Jesus who is the gate to heaven. So you've yeah. got Jesus and the Jesus, the person who suddenly opens for us that gateway mm. into heaven. And there's something just so magical about that as a theological idea, I think. Yeah. So, so you know, we are saved by the dying and rising of Jesus, who who takes to the cross our humanity, and and. Um, and, and takes upon himself the sins of the world, which means my sins and your sins. No, none of that can happen if he's God in disguise as a human being. It, it's only because he has uh, beautifully and mysteriously somehow shared completely what it is to be human without ever not also being completely God that this um, encounter... Um, and fulfilment it, 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 it is enabled to take place. Should we talk a, a bit more about Mary as well? Yeah. Um, 
I, I have for many, many years struggled with Mary. And a few years ago, I suddenly began to see why Mary is so important. Um, and part, I mean, it, this is a, a gender thing, largely, that mm. um, Mary has felt like a, a stick to beat me with. You know, that mm. um, the perfect woman is a virgin mother and anyone yeah. who isn't a virgin mother is a slight disappointment in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, as, as somebody to look up to, I've really struggled with her. Um, but there is just... I, over the last few years, I've just begun to realise quite why she is so inspirational, because she is so faithful. And there is something about Mary and her faithfulness um, right at the start when she meets um, Gabriel and then all the way through to that moment of, res of the ascension where she's there yeah. with the disciples still praying. Um, why, does Ma why is Mary so important to you? Yeah, so I think I think I think starting where you finished. Um, uh, so, first of all. Um, she is the, the the first disciple. She is the first follower of Jesus. You know, always pointing to Jesus. Do whatever he tells you, um, and and remaining when virtually everyone else has fled. So there's something about her as a, a model of Christian discipleship, a model of the apostolic life, which is really important for me. But I think underneath and behind that is well, if I could put it this way, you know, when I heard a sermon once which began, how many young women said no before Mary said yes? Now, of course, we, we cannot know the answer to that question. But I found it a very interesting thought um, that Mary's yes to God or Mary's yes to the angel at the incarnation, uh, at, at the, um, you know, at the... Um, Words have failed me. Remind me what we call that. The Annunciation. The Annunciation. <laughs> I was waiting for it to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have come eventually. Um, at the Annunciation, Mary's yes to God was not inevitable. Um, and for me, that's vitally important for my theological understanding of the Christian faith. That, that God never forces himself upon anyone, e even Mary, at the Annunciation, she could have said no. She chose to say yes. Um, and and therefore there is that amazing moment when the angel Gabriel lays out to the you know, bewildered and astonished, you know, Mary. And, you know, her first response is kind of fantastically human. How can this be? I'm a virgin. Um, uh, um, there, there's that moment where, as it were, the whole universe and every human person um, waits. You know, it take, in fact, now I say it, it takes us right to the heart, I think, of the real meaning of waiting in Advent. The whole creation waits to see how Mary will respond. Because if Mary doesn't say yes, it's not that God can't do what God does in Jesus Christ. But I think I want to say God won't do what God has done in Jesus Christ, because what God won't do is stop being love. And for it to be love, it has to be free. There can be there can be no coercion or manipulation in love. Um, and and therefore Mary's yes, the, the complete alignment of her will with, with the will of God is why she is model disciple um you know 
she is able to say completely to God, your will be done in me. You know, that's what Elizabeth says of her. Blessed is she who believed, you know, what, what was promised to the Lord would be done in her. Um, and that's the same, isn't that, the, isn't that really very simply the challenge for all of us as, as Christian disciples? Are we able to say yes to God, to allow God's will to be done in us so that we can be the people God wants us to be? Um, and the trouble is, you know, most of us, you know, I won't talk about anyone but myself. You know, we prevaricate a bit or we we lay down some conditions or we say, well, maybe tomorrow. Or we say, well, well maybe if I was someone else, if I had different gifts, if I was a different sort of person, then then I'd say yes to God. But actually, actually, I'm really afraid right now I'm going to have to say no. Um, so that for me is the most astonishingly beautiful part of the the story of Advent and Christmas, Mary's astonishing yes to God. That brings me on nicely to my next question, which um, is whether you've got a favourite birth narrative. It's a really easy qu question to ask of the resurrection narratives, because we've all got a sneaking favourite resurrection narrative. But have you got a favourite birth narrative? Yeah, well... I mean, I think the answer is no, but you don't really want that answer, do you? No, so, no. <laughs> so <laughs> try, try um, again. On what, what's that? Is it countdown? Is it where 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 the? Um, I think on countdown they allow the contestants to talk through the options on the board, don't yes, they? Yes. Before why, plumping why don't for you one. Do that? Yes. So I'll talk through the options. I, I mean, I, the prologue to St John's Gospel is one of the most powerfully beautiful passages. Uh, in the Christian faith and uh, in the Bible, and I love to read it, especially in church. So I love it. From everything I've just said about how important Mary is for my theological vision as a safeguard of the incarnation and as a model for discipleship, then Luke. But I'm going to go for Matthew, um, <laughs> just to introduce a different element into the conversation, because I also have a great love for St. Joseph. Um her spouse most chaste, you know, the poor old Joseph who gets forgotten in the story. Because Mary, and I'd love to hear what you think about this um, uh, as a biblical scholar. You know, Mary, I think to myself, well, once she said yes to God, she at least has the very clear evidence of what's growing inside her. But what does Joseph have to go on? Nothing but a dream. Um, and yet, on the strength of a dream, he puts his trust in in Mary. Uh, I just think that's incredible. And actually, probably much closer to how it is for most of us. You know, we don't have, you know, that physical evidence of what's growing inside us as Mary had. But we have dreams and we have visions and we have the stories other people tell us and we have to decide whether we're going to trust them. Um, so that for me is always a favourite bit of the of the Christmas stories, you know, faithful, faithful Joseph. But it's a different sort of faith. And do you know, now you say that, it makes me think that that is all of Matthew's story, isn't it? Because you know, you've got Mary who sees an actual angel, then you've got the shepherds who see the whole host of the heavenly yeah. about singing them a massive song, and off they go. Whereas you've got Joseph who gets a dream. And you've got the Magi who have to trek all these many miles on mm. the correct interpretation of the rising of a star. And mm. um, so you've got kind of much less certainty in Matthew, um, which is quite interesting, isn't it? When you it think is. about it as a, yeah. a whole story. 
Yeah. And I love it with the Magi because they, you know, in the end, you know, they see the star rising, but in the end, they trust their own charts and maps more than the star because when they get a bit near, they go, right, okay, let's, let's go to Herod's palace. That's obviously, that's obviously the destination. Yes. Um, uh, you know, they get it fantastically wrong before, before they get it right. Mm. But, but Joseph is, a, you know, we're, we're told very, very little about Joseph in Scripture. Um, but the few things we are told, um, you know, lead me to, 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 to have, you know, great, great regard and, 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 and love for him. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we imagine he's an older man, but we, we don't really know. We don't really know much about him. Um, but, yeah, something about putting, putting, your, putting your whole trust um, in something that was uh, so difficult to get hold of. That is, you know, so Mary and Joseph seem to me to offer us two pictures of, of, of faithfulness. Uh, the, 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 um, and it's really good for us to, to attend to both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really, really lovely image. But what would your, what would your, I mean, do you have a, do you have a favourite? Uh, it's John 1, without shadow of a doubt. Right, um, yeah. It's the, it, it, and which I know it is a bit of a cop-out because it's not a proper birth narrative, but there is just that the beautiful, poetic, the word became flesh. And yeah. um, I, I never get over that moment um, when we're in yeah. the Christmas carol services where you hear it and that sense, you know, and, that, and the kind of the, uh, the bit where um, John and the Greek is kind of playing, you know, the, the light shone in the darkness and the, the darkness couldn't. And then you have the discussion about whether it's whether the darkness could overtake it or whether it could comprehend it. And it means both, yeah. really. That kind yeah. of idea of um, Jesus arriving in the world mm. and the world going mm don't know what to make mm. of this and then our recognition of who Jesus really is um so yeah no it's for me John 1 is by far and away yeah. my favorite of all the birth narratives yeah yeah and as I say I, uh, hearing it read or or I, I mean I do love reading it um um but to read it um you know at a service of nine lessons and carols or, or at a midnight midnight service yeah. is I mean, I mean, I love. I'm, I'm a preacher, man. I love. I love preaching. I love opening up the word and trying to get people excited and stimulated by it. As I know, obviously, I know you do. Um, but actually, the prologue to John's Gospel is one of those bits of scripture where I think if it's been if it's read really well, you don't need a sermon. You, no, you just yeah. you just sit with 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 awe and wonder at, at this astonishing. Um, encapsulation of the of the heart of what what christmas is about you know there's a there's a strand in jewish interpretation which um, has always had a really big impact on me is that there are certain passages of scripture and in jewish interpretation it's passages like ezekiel one but there are passages of scripture that if you read them in the right way will give you a vision of god and I've uh-huh. always thought when i hear john one and also incidentally john 17 as well that I wonder whether John thought that, because I found in certain contexts where John 1 read in the right right way gives you a palpable sense of God in a way that no other parts of Scripture do in quite the same kind of way. Um, It's a a, a slightly fanciful notion, but it's very powerful, I think. 
No, and I, well, I, I, yeah, I, I, can, I, I can well imagine that bits of John 17 would have this, you know, ha do have this, that same, um, it's not just an emotional impact, but they do have um, a, a sense of declaration about them that they, they stand in their own right and don't really need um, any further comment. Um, uh, but, you know, Generally speaking, I still think there's work for preachers to do to uh, to unpack the scriptures. Oh, me too. I wouldn't be in my line of work otherwise, yeah. would I? <laughs> <laughs> um, Christmas, I just want to kind of move on to a slightly kind of more sombre theme, is that when we talk about Christmas, um, both in the church and also more widely in society, um, it feels often relentlessly cheery, doesn't it? That um, it's the best time of the year and everyone loves it. But there are so very many people, and I think this year, probably more than any, any other year, um, that really struggle with Christmas. That Christmas reminds them of the people that they've loved and lost. That um, Christmas is a time when um, they encounter um, the harsh realities of life. Um, and often we're very bad at acknowledging quite how difficult Christmas is um, for a whole range of different people. If there are people um, who are listening to our conversation today who are really struggling, <laughs> what kind of thing would you want to say to them um, around the Christmas season? Yeah, I, th I think you'd 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 be forgiven if you if you didn't know the the Christmas story as we encounter it in Scripture, but just went to a church and perhaps looked at a crib. Um, you'd be forgiven for thinking that having a baby in a stable is is quite the most lovely place. You know, surely what any pregnant mother would choose. Um, uh, there's these, you know, it all looks warm and cosy, all that lovely fresh straw. Y yet, of course, it is an unimaginably difficult and deeply frightening place for a child to be born. I mean, childbirth still today, but certainly in those days, was a, a, a time that was fraught with, with peril. So to give birth uh, in the back, you know, in an outhouse at the back of the pub, you know, unbelievably difficult. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm troubled by the, you know, the cheery sort of Disney type uh, presentation of Christmas that we sometimes unwittingly collude with because it's what we often encounter in, in other parts of the culture. Uh, many of our Christmas carols, not all of them, but many of them also collude with this rather pretty Disney um, uh, uh, picture of it all. So I think one of the things we need to do is simply just tell the story as it is. This is a story about a teenage pregnancy. It's a story about a poll tax summons. It's a story about a, a frightened young couple with, with nowhere to go. Uh, it's a story with a real dark side to it because the birth of Christ, you know, in, in the liturgy, we celebrate St. Stephen's Day. Then a couple of days later, we celebrate, well, celebrate, we remember uh, the massacre of the innocents that, that Herod, in his savage, brutal attempt to get rid of Jesus, many children are killed. And, and Jesus and the Holy Family go into exile. Um, I think for anyone whose life is hard, um, 
who who's living in difficult circumstances um this is a story that we can relate to um it's a deeply deeply human story um and and a million miles away from the cozy images that are sometimes presented to us at christmas yeah no i absolutely agree and um I often think there's a, there's a lovely poem Stoke Prayer by Michael Lunig, the Australian um, poet, um, that for me sums up why um, we need to be clear about the complexity of Christmas. Uh, it goes, um, love is born with a dark and troubled face when hope is gone. Um, and in the most unexpected of places, love is born. Love is always born. And there's just something spine-tinglingly beautiful for me about that. The reminder that in the, the darkest of our days, at the times when we're feeling most miserable, love is always born. And that for me is what Christmas, the, the, the message is, the true message of Christmas is really about. Yeah, and, and I do think in the church we have sometimes, yeah, sometimes failed to... Um, well, colluded, I think unwittingly colluded with a certain version of the Christian story. Um, and as I say, often our nativity plays, though we love them, and our carols don't help us. Um, uh, but, but actually, if you go back to the, to the biblical narratives, you're, you're presented with a beautiful but pretty challenging story. If we end on a cheerier note... Um, what will you be most looking forward to um, about Christmas? Oh, well, it's, it, for me, it's always, um, I mean, I know the obvious answer, which you have to give is, oh, I'm really looking forward to going to church. I am looking forward to going to church. I love the Christmas services. But actually, I'm looking forward to most is to the eating and the drinking is what I'm looking forward to the most. And, and I mean that in, in both ways that I'll be eating and drinking at Christmas. My favourite service is, is the Midnight Mass because um, it feels emotionally right. When you think about the birth of Jesus, you think about the middle of the night, and it feels right to be doing it in the middle of the night. And I like the fact that it's a Eucharist, because that straight away takes us, not just to the birth of Jesus, but also to his dying and rising. And it's a meal. Um, we have communion together. And then on Christmas Day, you know, hopefully this Christmas many of my family will be with me, um, to be around the table eating and drinking with those I love um, is, is undoubtedly uh, my, my favourite bit of Christmas. Um, and um, I, I hope that because I've eaten at the Lord's table as well as at my own table the next day, it might also remind me uh, to pay attention to those who won't have a table to be at. Stephen, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thank you, Paula.